Hi, everybody. Chris Roberts here of the I Saw It on Linden Street podcast. Just wanted to stop and take a moment to tell you about a podcast that I've been listening to, and I think you should as well. It would be the Horror Movie Survival Guide. It's a weekly podcast where two unlikely gorehounds and longtime chums, one of them a hardcore horror fan with a notebook to prove it, and the other finally coming out of the creepy horror fandom closet, get together to watch and talk about horror films from a survival point of view. They ask the question, how can they end up being the final girl? Join Julia and Terry as they take a deep dive into everything from OG horror to newly released films, but preferably the classics on VHS. They'll talk about obscure details that no one else notices, spin off into alternate casting universes, crush pretty hard on some dodgy fellows and creepy uncles, and they'll arm you, the listener, with the necessary knowledge to become the final girl. So go on, get out there, give them a listen. You can find them on Apple, on Spotify, on Google Play, anywhere that podcasts are available. And hey, when you get there, tell them Chris sent you. You know, keeping up with what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like it's more trouble than it's worth. The news can be scary and make you want to scream. Or there's just simply too much out there to keep up with. But that's why there's the Assorted Goods Podcast. It's the amateur's guide to world events, where each episode we take a closer look at a collection of stories that slip through the cracks of the regular news cycle. So find Assorted Goods on whatever podcast app you use and join me in my attempts to learn a little more about the world, one story at a time. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. So if you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. It's rather a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. You'll get some background on actors, information on the director, and if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. We are continuing our months-long theme of Ozploitation. That is our selection of some great, underrated, and overlooked classics that came from the great nation of Australia. This week, we are screening an Aussie comedy, 1997's Little Scene. Welcome to Whoop Whoop. Join us. This week's film has been dubbed the greatest bad film ever made. I don't agree with that at all. I remember seeing previews for this back in the day, and then as quickly as it seemed to be in theaters, it just vanished, which was not a great sign. I didn't give it much mind at the time, you know, I was just a kid in school. That is, until I went to college. 
As an undergrad in college, I began to have conversations, of course, with our local mom-and-pop video store staff. Now, you have to understand something. Back in the day, our local video store was owned and operated by this affable gay proprietor. A gentleman who I will, at least for the purposes of this tale, call Jim. Not his real name, but I don't want to have any litigious repercussions for this. Not that I have anything bad to say about Jim. Now, if you were a regular, like I was, over time, Jim would make note of what you were watching, and he would discuss those films that you rented and saw, and would try to make recommendations and ask you what you enjoyed about the choices that you made. You know, having a personality, being a good retailer. It was all done in a very friendly, respectable manner. Clearly, one doesn't go into that business if you don't enjoy seeing films and then talking about them with people. Here was the, quote, problem with Jim. Right up front, where they had the employee recommendations rack, each of the employees of the uh, mom and pop video store would have their picks of the movies that they enjoyed, and they would change them out every month or so. Jim didn't really do that. So, woe be unto the poor, unsuspecting soul who was caught looking at Jim's shelf. Because Jim would get so excited he would come down on you like a bear trap to just exuberantly talk to you about the films that he had selected to be on his shelf which would sit there unchanging gathering dust he would talk your ear off wanting to know if you had any questions for him or if he could help you I would always have to turn and say, N no, I'm just, I'm just browsing, because I didn't want to hear about how I should really see that Canadian gay art house film Urinal for the tenth time. I am not making a joke or doing a bit here. There is a 1988 film that is set in the bathrooms of Toronto with the manifestations of great dead artists who themselves were either openly gay or closeted, which includes the manifestations of Sergei Eisenstein, Langston Hughes, Yukio Mishima, and Frida Kahlo. Not a bad flick per se, but no, I don't want to really see it, Jim. Well, on one visit, I made the tactical error, and I found myself sucked into a conversation with Jim about the merits of director Stephen Elliott, whose seminal work, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, had a permanent slot on Jim's recommendation shelf. And it did start out innocently enough for me. You see, I... I'm a big Ewan McGregor fan, and I wanted to rent the late 90s Stephen Elliott thriller, Eye of the Beholder, in my further effort to catch up on Ewan McGregor films. And I had actually read the Mark Behem novel that it was based on, and I was interested in seeing how it would be played up. You have Ewan McGregor portraying this private detective who becomes infatuated with a woman who he observes, played here by Ashley Judd, who actually turns out to be a serial killer. He then, with this obsession, attempts to protect her both from herself and outside law enforcement. It's a weird little film. Doesn't work really well, but I like it. And honestly, it's going to be a decent candidate for a future episode here. But when I first saw it, I was still kind of sorting out how I felt about it. And so when I went back into the store, uh, at the time accompanied by my really good friend Liz, who would often 
you know, just tag along when we had errands because it was college or an undergrad. You have no money, you have nothing to do, so you find yourself, for grins, going shopping and doing other errands with other people. And Liz was always good company. Jim clocks our entry, he notices me returning this film, and he suddenly tries to get me to go down this Stephen Elliott rabbit hole with him. The following is a dramatic reinterpretation of a conversation that actually happened. Oh, you're a Stephen Elliott fan. Uh, I, actually, I, I just got this. I wanted to see uh, Ewan McGregor, and I was hoping that... Have you seen Priscilla? It's a fantastic film. Guy Pierce, Hugo Weaving, they're both drag queens. A actually, yes, I have seen it, and it, it's all right, but... Oh, it's a great movie. You want to grab it? It's on the shelf right behind you. It's one of my picks for this month. No, not at the moment. I'm actually bringing this back, and I'm actually going to look for something different. Wasn't I just amazing? Actually, I had read the book. Uh, I didn't care for some of the changes. I mean, it's a good story and all, but what I really wanted to see... You didn't like it. I, I didn't hate it. Again, it was okay. The changes in the motivations for the characters kind of threw me when they made changes to the... At this point, I'm getting the look. A doubting face from Jim, where he's trying to ascertain if I really knew what I was talking about. Well, hold on. What about Welcome to Whoop Whoop? I I'm aware of it, but honestly, I've never seen it. Hold on. Jim disappears to the lower level of the store and reappears with a VHS in hand. Welcome to Whoop Whoop. It's a comedy. It's great. There's whole sections that reference South Pacific. The music is good. It's a super cute story. You should totally watch it. What other movies of his have you seen? What can I hook you up with? In my hand, I am already holding a copy of John Huston's Preezy's Honor. I came there that night with the intention of seeing it. I really don't want to have to go around with Jim about his suggestions and do this whole conversation over again just then liz is beside me my own personal archangel swooping in to save me from more awkwardness oh you got that gangster movie you wanted and you got us a comedy to watch tonight together that will be perfect for us liz leans on my arm takes the tape slips out of my grip and hands them to Jim. He cheerfully rings me up for the rental, hands me back the two tapes, and says, I am sure that you are going to love what I've given you. He is probably fully content that he has just given a little bit of his own worldliness to some, quote, young college couple. We exit the door, we get out on the street, and I turn to Liz. We're watching these tonight? We are watching these tonight? And here's why I love having Liz as a friend. <laughs> Hell no! I'm gonna go to a house party over on Willow Street. You just looked like you needed some help there. I love my friends. So what do I do? I get myself a sub sandwich. I go back to my dorm room. And I sit down, and I am surprisingly pleased with Jim's recommendation. It, it was funny, 
it was cute, it was this screwball story that didn't take itself too seriously, and it was packed with a bunch of oddball characters and shenanigans that made me understand almost instantly why this didn't take off at least upon its initial release. It's almost too quirky for its own good. And it's kind of a pity, because this is a film that, again, if it had just come out a few years later, I actually feel it would have received a very different response, and it would have been considered an interesting indie comedy. Still, I have to hand it to Jim. My hat's off to him. It's nice to get a recommendation from somebody and have it turn out to be exactly like they said it would be, a fun and cute story to watch. So, for starters, let me give you a little bit of background about director Mr. Stephen Elliott. Born August 27, 1964, Elliot got his start actually in the film industry right at the apex of the Aussie New Wave scene. By the early 90s, he had tra transitioned from being this assistant director to helming features of his own. He did 1993's Frauds, which is a black comedy about an insurance investigator who ends up blackmailing a couple who end up accidentally killing a friend during a prank gone wrong. Starring Genesis frontman Phil Collins, a very young Hugo Weaving, and Josephine Burns, the film didn't do spectacular at the box office, but by the time it got around to being released on VHS, Elliot's groundbreaking picture, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, had already made its debut in 1994, and so Frauds was able to trade off of the success of that second picture and become a fairly successful VHS release due to the simple tagline of, from the director of the frockbuster Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Okay, since we're here, I have to say too, I've dropped that title enough, I need to at least give it some context and some due. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is about three drag queens who are portrayed by Terence Stamp, Hugo Weaving, and a very young Guy Pierce, making their way across Australia, performing drag shows, and having encounters with some less than friendly locals in a large bus that they have dubbed Priscilla. It's a road comedy, it's indeed a very enjoyable movie, and its success actually spurred on some imitators, such as the American 1995 comedy, To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. That stars Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, John Leguizamo. It made some cash for Elliot, it got an Academy Award for its best costume design, and it really let Elliot write his own ticket for his next project, which, for in this case good or ill, was this week's selection. Now, Elliot claims he got the idea when he was out shooting Priscilla Queen of the Desert for this film. In a 1998 interview that he gave to The Advocate, he stated that he was shooting some of the redneck scenes that the drag queens of the film encounters, and he was struck with this idea of what would it be like to make sort of like a musical version of Deliverance. You got these rough folk who live out here in the outback. As he puts it, they're awash with brutality. And what if you had a specific population of this sort of redneck people who were very menacing to outsiders, yet simultaneously they were decent folks who were obsessed with Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Thus, this concept of a black comedy was born, 
So he had to find a project that would match that, and Elliot ended up adapting his vision and tying it in to a Douglas Kennedy 1994 novel called The Dead Heart, which at its story base was about an American journalist who experiences a midlife crisis and suddenly finds himself having this weird adventure in the middle of the Australian outback, similarly to find himself stuck in a community that he may never leave from again. This is the perfect story to graph that comedic twist onto, although I have to say The Dead Heart is a fairly comedic novel. For those of us in the United States, where our understanding of other cultural slang can be sorely lacking, the title of Welcome to Whoop Whoop is based on the Aussie term of Whoop Whoop, a location that is far away from anything of interest. It would be analogous to our American expression about somebody being from out in the sticks, or conversely, out in the boondocks. Elliot shot on location outside of Alice Springs, Australia. He ended up getting the interiors to be filmed on set in Sydney, Australia, and shooting commenced from September through November of 1996, with an established budget of the film for $10 million. For the cast, they got an up and rising Jonathan Sheck, selected to be the lead role of Teddy. And Sheck was hot off of his work on How to Make an American Quilt, The Doom Generation, and his role with Tom Hanks in That Thing You Do had not yet dropped, but he was himself enjoying his 15 minutes of fame, being kind of the it boy of the mid-90s. Playing Teddy's initial love interest, Susie Porter, who went on now to be in Wentworth fame, was cast as Angie, the sex-pot 70s-styled younger daughter of Daddy-O and Ginger, who lures Teddy into their world. Playing Angie's kinder and more reserved older sister of Crystal was Dee Smart of the Australian soap opera Home and Away fame. She does a lovely job as a woman who understands there is more to life than holding on to this small existence in Whoop Whoop. For the menacing but still charming character of Daddy-O, the de facto ruler of the town, the brilliant Rod Taylor was cast. For those of you who are like me who grew up watching Rod Taylor and things like The Time Machine and Alfred Hitchcock's Birds, this is amazing for him. The role is fantastic. He gets to be all things at once. He's both the villain, he's a comedian, he has these poignant moments of tenderness, and he gets to perform a full tap dance routine on a bar top wearing electrified tan shoes. What more can you want from this man? Complimenting him in all this lunacy, character actress Maggie Kilpatrick plays Ginger, Daddy-O's chain-smoking, flatulent, often-drunk wife, who actually takes a shine to the main character of Teddy and feels he's going to become the community's next actual leader. Rounding all of this out, you have some incredible cameos here. First, you have Barry Humphreys, a comedian and the star of many an Australian New Wave film, representing that old awker image, those roots of portraying characters. Um, in this case, he is Blind Wally, 
a fantastic cameo that he has as this weird, crooked gas station owner-operator who encounters Teddy, and next, a very small but humorous role for Paul Mercurio of Strictly Ballroom fame. He plays Midget, Crystal's husband who is the town's de facto hairdresser, and is a man who is clearly gay and being held in whoop-whoop against his will. It's a brilliant portrayal. I wish there were more scenes with him because Mercurio is amazing. Now, since Elliot had such success with the soundtrack for Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, when he went back to the Rogers and Hammerstein people, they opened the complete library up to him. So Whoop Whoop's soundtrack is insanely good. He makes great use of selecting some incredible actual versions and some great cover versions of popular songs from South Pacific, Oklahoma, Carousel, and The Sound of Music. Hey, I have to say, is I, I like musicals. Don't get me wrong. Um, Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, often story-wise, I find the stories to be ridiculously boring. The music is fantastic. So for my money, like when you have a showcase of just the songs, in the case of like a show like A Grand Night for Singing, that's where the money is. That's where you can put all the excitement and wonder in. And in this case, using these Rodgers and Hammerstein songs, I would hope that as more people see this cult film, you turn people on to Rodgers and Hammerstein music because it is fantastic here. But you know what? You've been ever so patient in listening to me set this up, talking about my stale college stories, and now hearing me wax on about how I feel about Rodgers and Hammerstein musical numbers. How about we just get to a trailer? What do you say? Bloody flies, but it's ours. It's a stride, yeah. Our first breaky with my new hubby. I'm not your husband. We're not married. Well, you want to see the photos? Stand up, you duffer. Whack me in the head. Eddie the gay. Honeymoon is totally unacceptable. You asked me. Well, I don't think On so. On the beach, you said. What did I say? I love you. <laughs> I want you to be happy here, Teddy. That's my prayer. <laughs> As far as the 7 o'clock news goes, Whoop Whoop doesn't exist, and that's the way we like it. Nobody leaves here without my permission, and that permission is never given. This is a We open in New York on a small-time hustler con man, Teddy, is played by Sheck, who is trying with his stripper girlfriend, Rachel Griffiths, to sell some exotic cockatiels to some rough customers. When that deal goes south, leaving two mafiosos dead and all of his birds freed, Teddy is forced to abandon New York entirely and head back to Australia to collect more birds to sell. 
traveling through the outback in a VW microbus. He finds himself being price gouged and taken advantage of by Blind Wally, is played by Barry Humphreys, who overcharges him for gas, the use of a shower, and then lets other travelers that Teddy sees at the gas station get a lift from him, which includes a comely young girl by the name of Angie, played by Susie Porter, and a young Aboriginal man named Lionel, played by Stan Tamimara. They talk about looking for the Big Red, a mythical avenging kangaroo that supposedly haunts the outback, but eventually Lionel leaves fairly early in the travels, and it's only Angie and Teddy talking and flirting a bit, getting to know each other as they drive across Australia. You want a bite? Cherry ripe. It's good. Yeah, I wouldn't have anything to do with a person who didn't like a cherry ripe. You ever had an almond joint? I'm that way about an almond joint. Finish it. What's a seppo? A septic tank. Oh, a septic tank. No, you drongo, a yank. What's your name? Angie. <laughs> Angie is surprised by the modern music Teddy gets on the VW's radio, noting that all she gets on the radio station back home is Rogerson Hammerstein which really means Rogers and Hammerstein, which then segues into them singing show tunes together as they drive across the outback. After a bit, Angie discovers that Teddy isn't married and insists he pulls over, where she sort of manically questions him that, does he have a girlfriend? His answer is no. Does he like her? Yeah, sure. And after that, she demands he not lie to her, which confuses him, and he says, why would I lie to you? At which point, Angie shoves Teddy into the back of the VW microbus and enthusiastically sleeps with him. They continue their travels across the outback together, making love, sharing stories, with Angie constantly expressing how happy she is to finally have her first boyfriend, something that Teddy is a little taken aback by especially when she explains that she herself was, up until they met, a virgin, and that there are only 50 people or so in the town she is from, and they're all related, so this was the only way she was going to meet somebody. She didn't want to frighten him off at first. They travel on, and she loudly worries that Teddy is going to dump her, and she confesses something else to him. You're going to dump me, aren't you? I'm not going to dump you. Why am I going to dump you? You do it all the time. It's written all over your face. Man, I had to be sick in the head to dump you. Men spend their entire lives dreaming of a girl like you. You can dump me when we get to the sea, but not before. You promised me you're not going to dump me till I see the sea? She's never seen the sea? No. He grew up in Wilpool. I'm not going to dump you, Angie. I wouldn't lie to you. I'll show you the sea. 
They make it to the sea. Angie goes ballistic, running and playing in the surf, acting like a happy little kid, frolicking. Teddy sits back and laughs, taking all of the sight in, happy to be able to bring her joy and marveling that perhaps his luck is finally changing. That is, until Angie asks him the following. Teddy receives a hard right cross to his face and wakes up in his underwear lying in a pig pen, filthy and clearly coming to after being drugged. A man named Reggie is played by Richard Moore. Whoop Whoop's designated medicine man and radio DJ checks on him and throws him two cold beers, warning him that he needs to keep his fluid intake up Th that is, until the drugs wear off. He then stumbles out of the pen, blinking in the harsh daylight, and sees that he is surrounded by people, including the now beaming Angie. A little girl approaches him and formally welcomes him to Whoop Whoop with some flowers, and Teddy collapses back into unconsciousness. He wakes back up, tied to a bed, apparently his new bed. Well his and Angie's new bed, which she explains they're now, quote, happily married. Angie, read my lips. I'm not your husband. We're not married. There was no wedding. Well, you wait till you see the photos. And you get back down there. <laughs> but I know you don't remember that much about it. You were that crook. We had to stick you in the wheelbarrow for the vows. It was a beautiful day, Teddy. It was the happiest day of my life. <laughs> now, where are those fucking wedding photos? Coffee's sweet and think of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Ah! Got him. <laughs> now, here we go. Yeah. Now, this is me. Yeah, throw on the bouquet. Oh, stand up, you duffer. <laughs> oh, Eddie the cake. And there's Crystal, my sister. There she is. I'm going for a walk. What? A walk. What do you want to go for a walk for? <laughs> I hate you! I make a hunt for you! I cook your breakfast! What do you want to go and spoil it all for? My honeymoon! <laughs> what honeymoon? There ain't gonna be any honeymoon. A honeymoon is totally unacceptable. You whack me in the head. You shoot me full of dope. You tossed me a pig pen for a week, and I wake up married. I don't want to marry you. I don't want to marry anyone. But you said. What? What did I say? You asked me. Well, I don't think On so. On the beach, you said. Well, I don't care what you I said. That was the girl of your dreams. She said happy ever after. Happy ever after, you said. Forget what I said. I didn't mean it. I'm a liar. Ask anybody. I'm basically rotten to the core. 
Teddy is then taken forcefully to meet with Whoop Whoop's leader and his new father-in-law, Daddy-O, as played by Rod Taylor, who runs his business out of Whoop Whoop's tavern pub with his brain trust, Reggie, and Moose, as played by Bob Oxenbold. Decked out in a rugby player's jersey and a sweatband, Daddy-O explains to him that the town came to be. Whoop Whoop used to be an asbestos mining location. All of it was shut down, and while the land was offered up to their aboriginal people, it was so bad off they didn't want it, and so the remaining workers built their lives and stayed there since 1979. Whoop Whoop doesn't officially appear on any known map, Teddy may as well be dead to the world, and Daddy-O lays out to him the communal rules for the town, cementing his new reality. Personally, I can't see what she sees in a hippie-looking numbat like you, but I won't let that fuck me up. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Do the honors, Reg. Hey, you're a rich man, Buffhead. United States of America, gee. Now, listen, your money's no good to you here, no private property. That's ru rule number one. You come to live in this community, you donate all your capital and other material assets to the town. You're off the map, son. As far as the 7 o'clock news goes, whoop whoop doesn't exist. And that's the way we like it. And that's the way it's going to stay. Nobody leaves here without my permission. And that permission is never given. That's rule number two. Any questions? Huh? What? What's he trying to say, Moose? I don't know, mate. It's just me and Angie. Spit it out, Wolf. I never asked her to marry me. You never asked her. You never popped the question. No. Are you suggesting she's a liar? No, no, what, what I'm suggesting... Are you suggesting my little princess is a liar? That's what it sounds like to me. What's it sound like to you, Reg? You're saying she's a liar. No, it, well, maybe if I put it another you way... You poked her once, you poked her twice, now you've got to put your hand up. You're a grown man, aren't you? You're not a fucking grub. Speak up, son. Or we're not going to hit it off, you and me. If we don't hit it off, I want to underline this in red. If we don't see eye to eye, the next thing you know, Fafangula, we're going to be having an argument. And one of us is going to end up being the injured party. And you'd be the favourite, Wolfhead. You'd be odds on, son. You'd be London to a fucking brick. Nice. Lovely. Slam the bag, Rich. Teddy gets to meet his mother-in-law, Ginger, as played by Maggie Kilpatrick. His sister-in-law, Crystal, as played by Dee Smart, who's the school teacher in town as well as her husband, Midget, is played by Mercurio, Whoop Whoop's hairdresser, and watches in shocked horror as the denizens of the town pile into the local pub to communally get drunk on 4X beer, 
where Daddio is demanded to perform a dance for the audience, and they hook a set of jumper cables up to a pair of special tap shoes that he has, and he spark dances across the bar top to the tune of Shall We Dance? Reggie takes Teddy aside and assures him that as long as he stays on Daddio's good side, he is going to have a friend for life and tells him he really thinks he's going to fit in well here. It's just going to take some time. He also fills Teddy in on rule number three. You see, since the people of the town have been here for almost 30 years, the next generation has had to be explicitly told and has failed at numerous times not sleeping with their relatives. It's also very humorously implied that the general IQ of the populace over that term of time uh, rule number three itself has not always been enforced, hence why people like Teddy are let into the community to strengthen the gene pool. Teddy tries to fit into his new life as a captive member of Whoop Whoop Society. He marvels at that gigantic mountain of garbage at the center of town, and he learns that they have an annual holiday called Garbage Day, where the town all gets drunk and they set it alight. The entire economy of the town is based on processing kangaroo carcasses, roadkill, that is, into dog food, and everyone pitches in to either work in the production of the product or to help maintain the town. Teddy also learns that the town of Whoop Whoop is literally in the middle of a crater, surrounded 360 degrees by mountains, making his escape well-nigh impossible. He also gets to see firsthand what happens to those who attempt to leave the town, when his brother-in-law Midget attempts to flee in the middle of the night and ends up being shot in the back as he attempts to scale the mountainside for freedom. It's Daddio himself who delivers the killing round, much to Crystal's horror. Teddy does develop a rhythm of life for himself in the town. He has some mechanical skill and is challenged by Daddio to repair the completely disassembled VW van, as well as to work on other projects for the community. Teddy does have an affinity for and becomes the de facto mechanic, ending up earning respect amongst the citizens. He also befriends and saves a cattle dog from being targeted by the weird mutant children of the town, taking him on as a pet, naming him Mr. Bojangles. He forms a bond with his sister-in-law, Crystal. They share a love of exotic birds and talk of desires to escape to see the bigger world at large and becomes friends of a kind with the not-too-sharp Duffy, as played by Mark Wilson. Teddy also notices the disparity that the locals have to put up with. Daddio, you see, he claims that he's unable to do much for them. Reggie is the designated quartermaster of the town, and he distributes off-brand cigarettes, spam, beans, and canned pineapple chunks out to the masses, even when the locals request some pretty basic items like coffee, Marlboro cigarettes, and literally any fruit that is not pineapple. The weeks continue to pass. Christmas comes to Whoop Whoop, and Teddy finds himself the man of the hour. 
First, he stops Daddy-O from beating Duffy almost to death over Duffy and his cousin Laverne breaking rule number three. To lighten the mood, Angie decides to speak up and makes an announcement to the rest of the world. She and Teddy are pregnant. Teddy does not want to have kids and still harbors the hope of escape, but he dutifully spends his time taking care of his morning sick wife and spends his evenings enjoying communal entertainment with the town square where they show the musicals of Rodgers and Hammerstein. That is, until he gets word from Duffy that there's something else he needs to be seen. You see, as the town elders, Moose, Reggie, and Daddy-O, they hold themselves up in the upper offices of the tavern. That's where they have a secret television set. They watch soccer, they drink, they eat exotic, nice foods, smoke brand-name Marlboro cigarettes, have ice readily available. They are hoarding all of the luxuries that Whoop Whoop has earned for themselves, denying their local community the same pleasures. Duffy and Teddy also converse more about the concept of Big Red, the legend that gets told to the children of the town, handed down to them by way of the aboriginals. Big Red is a 20-foot-tall kangaroo who carries away children who try to leave, an animal who can kill a man with one punch. Teddy takes this all in, and more time passes. Teddy then unveils a completely repaired VW bus to Daddy-O and the town, causing a celebration and earning the respect from the community. Teddy is finally accepted. And, what's more, he ends up performing a magic trick with his, quote, lovely assistant Crystal, the old saw-a-woman-in-half routine. It entertains the entire community, but Angie gets angry and jealous at Teddy for spending time with her sister and runs off to cry. Daddy-O, meanwhile, gets angry at Teddy for seemingly taking away his own popularity. Teddy and Crystal go for a walk to talk about life and about, just in general, the feeling of not fitting in. I don't fit in here. Bottom of my heart, this is totally unacceptable. I mean, look, these used to be white. You talk too much, anyone ever tell you that? My mother. Oh, yeah, you talk too much for your own good. Story of my life. There you go again. You know, you don't fit in here any more than I do. What makes you so sure? I'm a good judge of character. You making me an offer? No, but I'd be happy to. This stuff might work where you come from, but I'm telling you, it's not going to work here. That's too bad. You, you change your mind, you let me know. You know, you might be the last one to know. Why is that? Because I'm a good judge of character, too. They are quickly interrupted by a runner, carrying a message from Duffy. The van has been completely destroyed. Daddy-O sits inside of it, drunk to the gills and challenges Teddy to put it back together again. When Teddy understandably asks him, Why? Why did you destroy it? Daddy responds, Well, it's because you're such a fucking genius, right? Teddy is far more upset by the fact that his dog has been killed, with Daddy-O only half 
half-heartedly claiming that, well, it was one of the kids that did it, casting it off as, besides, you know, it was dog day. Even Crystal is horrified at the behavior of her father. Teddy leads some of the younger community members in an open protest against Daddy-O and his men, accusing them all of withholding resources from the town. Daddy-O ends up giving a rousing speech about how nobody wanted this place and how they made it theirs, and while Teddy loses for the moment, he has officially inspired Crystal to actively help him to leave. Angie ends up accusing Teddy and Crystal of having an affair, but not before the two of them discuss hot-wiring the 40-ton dump truck that is used to deliver kangaroo carcasses to the processing plant. They plan on doping Daddy-O, stealing the key to the vehicle that is always on his person, but Ginger ends up falling ill, alluding to her problematic plumbing, but in reality, she is dying of cancer caused both by her smoking and, more likely, the years of her being exposed to asbestos. Teddy ends up having a heart-to-heart -heart with his dying mother-in-law, who shares with him that she thinks he's a good man, one who could stay on and end up running this place one day, and asks him not to blame Daddy-O. She actually gives him a kiss and whispers something to him before passing on. Crystal refuses to leave with Teddy as she won't leave her dying mother's side. But once that moment has come, as the denizens gather round to lead a funeral procession set to You'll Never Walk Alone, Crystal changes her mind and slips the keys of the clubhouse office that she stole when she was helping her father get ready for said funeral. Daddy-O, leading the funeral procession, lovingly lays his wife on Garbage Mountain and ignites the funeral pyre, sending his wife on to the next world. Teddy likewise makes a mad dash trying to get the car keys out of the office using the keys crystal slipped him while it looks like they're gonna get away with it and no one will notice angie ends up finding teddy now wearing his own watch trying to walk out with the car keys on her teddy Where have you been, you naughty boy? Hmm? Reggie reckons it's twins. Wouldn't that be too much? I've been trying to think of some names. How much on in share? Here, you feel them? We cut next to Teddy sprinting off into the night and see a tied and gagged Angie in Daddy-O's office. As the song Climb Every Mountain swells, Crystal and Teddy make it up to the summit and get to the heavy rig. As they drive away, Crystal asks him, are you sad that you're leaving your baby? Which Teddy responds that 
No, not at all. You see, Ginger ended up sharing with him that Angie was lying about being pregnant in the first place to get more attention from him, causing Crystal to start to laugh at just how crazy her sister really is. Angie works her way free, running, armed with a gun, screams for her father to help stop them. The two end up giving chase in the half-built VW microbus across the outback, shooting at Teddy and trying to stop the rig, all the while an unhinged Angie swinging at it and Teddy with an axe. The silly slapstick chase itself ends with the appearance of none other than Big Red, the very real 20-foot-tall kangaroo. Daddy-O, sticking with advice that he gave Teddy at the beginning of the film, speeds up intending to hit the animal. And, with the flash of lightning, VW, Angie, Daddy-O, and Big Red all disappear from sight, with only Teddy and Crystal to witness the total vehicle dropping from the sky as if it was kicked by something large. Landing, unable to drive... Both Angie and Daddy-O are left stunned but uninjured. Crystal and Teddy drive off with the sun rising over the outback while Daddy-O cracks a beer and Angie cries. The credits roll. But for those patient enough to sit through them, it'll eventually have a scene where we cut to 15 years later. A graying Teddy and Crystal are happily running a pet store together in New York dealing with their beloved birds. The door jingles, and a nervous crystal ends up calling Teddy out from doing inventory in the back to introduce to him two young folks standing in front of him, Sonny and Cher. A stunned Teddy stares slack-jawed as they in unison say, G'day, Dad. So where to even begin? One of the things that I absolutely love about this film, as absurd of all of it is, is the black comedy satire played to the hilt. It's actually very subtly smart. Case in point, the town itself went through its official being erased off the maps in the late 1970s, but when you look at the town denizens themselves, their ages and their eras of existence as to when they had a relationship with the town are evident through their clothing styles. Daddio and Ginger are often decked out in 1950s regalia. Their children are garbed in 1970s vintage style. And then there's the generation of folks who are barely able to muster 80s fashion, clearly showing a line of demarcation for who was an original resident to who has been <clears throat> recruited by the community. Their slang, their cultural references, all of them are from when time stopped for them. It's a brilliant touch. Angie shouts to Teddy to sock it to me, and Teddy's bemusement with the fact that he's dealing with this attractive girl who is using slang from almost 30 years prior make it a fantastic narrative touch. I love that the denizens of Whoop Whoop have created their own dog food brand that they call Woof Woof. And while the Aussie Auker redneck culture is indeed skewered here, although I would argue not maliciously, I do love that it has such an absurdist opening. Look, 
They're even making fun of the citizens of New York for brandishing handguns and masks to take pot shots at Teddy's escaping flock of cockatiels. This movie is quite funny and is smart to boot. Now, I will grant you, I have a few things to say that I don't care about this picture. It was meant to be broad with its characterizations, and indeed, the character of Ginger, I absolutely will say, does wear thin. Her flatulence, her hacking smokers' coughs. The real thing that actually bothers me about this film, though, is how it treats animals, specifically dogs. Now, I'm not a person who will tell you that I can't watch a film where a dog is injured or killed. That, that would be my wife. No, if it serves the story in a logical way, I understand and will not fault a film for portraying an injured or dead animal. I still don't have to like it. In this case though, Daddio's killing of Teddy's adoptive pet, while it does make perfect sense in the context that this story presents it, it's still a sore point for me. At least personally. He already destroyed the van. He already showed his dominance and power, so killing the animal as a warning is almost over the top and gratuitous. I get it, it's meant to show how serious a threat Daddy-O is, but think, and, and at least I'll say, thankfully it happens off screen, but I've always felt it doesn't really wash here, and the film is actually better than that, and this is a scene that could have been done without. That being said, Rod Taylor is a real star throughout all of this. His presence, his sheer physicality, his character loves these people. They're his town, his community, his family. And while he may be a patriarchal asshole, such as with his willingness to make his displeasure with young Duffy known by literally beating some sense into him, you never once get the impression that he would not give his life for these people, even though it's he who's actually ripping them off, taking advantage of them, and profiting from their labor. Still, upon Ginger's own funeral, Taylor actually steals that scene, a man who has lost the love of his life, who is leading the entire community behind him in a procession to oversee the funeral pyre for his beloved wife, and he is trying to hold it all together with a steely resolve, even as the tears well up in his eyes. It's an amazing performance. And so, how was this film received? Well, in short, terribly. Elliot was rushed to cobble together an unfinished cut of the film to be screened out of competition at the 1997 Cannes Film Festival, and it was met with boos and walkouts from the crowd when he did. The whole ending sequence with the kangaroo was not yet finished, and the film was missing numerous small edits and scenes being inserted in, with the presentation being put under a completely different name for the film, at the time it was known as Big Red. Elliot recalls the whole experience of showing the film being excruciating. Even so, that version would be recut again and recut again after that, changing from a 120-minute film to being knocked down to a 102-minute film to again being a 97-minute film. When it did make its official Australian debut in August of 1998, it was only screened to a limited number of theaters, 
earning only about $489,000 at the box office against its $10 million budget. Elliot himself considered the film to be a spectacular car crash and noted that he never got to finish the film as he had truly intended. When it was released to a lackluster fashion by way of its Australian audience, it would only then have the most minute of openings in the United States where it screened on a select number of theaters before almost immediately being yanked. The majority of people who saw this film the year it came out only saw it as it was released as a direct-to-video film. Critics were completely confused by it. Some defenstrated it, excoriated it, set it on fire and mulched what was left of the ashes. Others tried to salvage the comedy aspects of the film, noting that yes, it does miss its mark, but at least it attempted to swing for the fences, praising Rod Taylor's performance and noting that the tone may not be indeed for everyone. What was unavoidable though, almost every review compared it to how wonderful and whimsical Elliot's Priscilla Queen of the Desert was, and then pointing out that, quote, this was his next offering. Critics were, in a sense, befuddled, saddened. It was too crass. The language was too out there. The sex too real. The nudity too nude. The casual way that animals were dispatched. This was not an image that Australian cinema-goers wanted to be reminded of when they thought of denizens in the outback. For U.S. critics who got to see it, they were equally unsure as to what to make of things. Jack Matthews of the L.A. Times stated, You know you're in trouble when the hero of this story is the least interesting one in it. It was the October 1998 issue of The Cinema Papers that critic Jan Epstein at least gave some real adult context to this film. Having seen it first unfinished at the can cut, and then having the foresight to sit through the theatrical screening version of it. She states, Welcome to Whoop Whoop has been called an anachronism, a gross comedy in the 70s tradition of the adventures of Barry McKenzie. There's some truth to this, which Elliot underlines by casting in the uncouth roles Barry Humphreys and Alan Finney, but there's more to the film than just this. Welcome to Whoop Whoop is both frightening and a bizarre coupling of Lord of the Flies with Peter Weir's The Cars That Ate Paris. Waco meets Wake in Fright. Elliot's command of this film, his love of kitsch, the outrageousness that has allowed him to thumb his nose at political correctness, all launch a broadside against what he perceives to be an evil and ugliness within the Australian character. Daddio is indeed a vulgar, beer-swilling, lap-dancing villain of the First Order, an autocrat posing as a paterfamilias who rules with an iron fist over his fiefdom that is Whoop Whoop, a shanty town built on the site of an old asbestos mining town in the dead heart of Australia. 
and Elliot lampoons Daddy-O mercilessly, but for all his jocularity and sentimental concern over his oversexed daughter Angie and his sick wife Ginger, Daddy-O at his core is a frightening thug. Wearing a sleeveless footy jumper with a tennis sweatband around his head, there is nothing he would not do to prevent the hapless Teddy or anyone else from leaving Whoop Whoop and thwarting his will. She concludes her statement with the following. It is not drawing the long bow to see Welcome to Whoop Whoop as a film which, in the late 90s, dares to tackle head-on one of Australia's most sacred cows, the myth of the blokey, genial, dinky-dee, unsophisticated, but decent Aussie, one who believes in a fair go for all. Whoop Whoop exposes the dark side of sunny Australia with exuberance and glee. One of the film's most startling and memorable scenes is the appearance out of the aboriginal darkness of Daddy-O's nemesis, Big Red. But there's also an ambivalence there, too. Fear mingled with affection, which beckons perhaps the director's own nostalgic and longing for days of a picket fence. Look, I'm an American, but if you want to compare this film on the basis of nationalities, the hero of the film is a two-bit huckster who finds himself completely out of his element and still looking for a way to weasel his way out of things. I would not use the character of Teddy to be a cultural paragon of enlightenment, nor would I use him to be the best and brightest of what we here in the USA could scrape together. Therefore, I can't tell Australians how to feel about how this film portrays its denizens of the interior. But here's what I can tell you. That this film, for all its bluster, for all of its crudeness, it has a ton of heart. That, and I truly think that the critics missed the mark with it. Yeah, it's satire, and it does need to ramp up some of the horrific aspects of the denizens of Whoop Whoop, at least turning it up to 11 to make those jokes stick. But this film in no way seems to have a malicious bone in its body. Its portrayal of Whoop Whoop, I think, at least personally, the life it's experiencing now, t some 20 years later, as a cult film, this is just something that is meant to be fun, and it's going to continue to grow as a cult film because, truthfully, it's meant to be enjoyed as the comedy that it wants to be when you get down to it. And the more people that see it, I think the more people will realize it's just a fun film. The version of Welcome to Whoop Whoop screened here at the LSCE was the 2009 Burned to Order MGM Classics DVD line, which is currently available on Amazon for what I'm jokingly going to say the exorbitant price of $18.99, which is truly perfectly reasonable for a cult film of its stature. Now, I don't usually do this, but I can already anticipate some people asking, so I'm just going to say yes. At least as of April 2020, this film in its entirety is available to watch on YouTube. And while I don't condone viewing such things just for free, 
I am a firm believer in supporting physical media because I personally want more of it. I also realized in the slowed down days of the COVID virus and people are desperate to be entertained, I think this is a film you can check that box off for a number of people out there to just see. Now that being said, here, I'll give you my usual spiel. <clears throat> Remember folks, we here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience don't get anything for telling you to purchase items, we just feel it's important to continue to support physical media so that these fine distributors who own the rights to these wonderful films will continue to release the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what really counts? Besides. Welcome to Whoop Whoop is a truly fun and bizarrely entertaining film, and I feel it's absolutely worth your time. Support some wonderful exploitation. Go out there, buy yourself a copy today. If nothing else, go see it online. You will be better off for having done so. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. Okay, I know I already tug at your coat sleeve at the end of each show, but during these crazy days of the COVID virus, I do have an opportunity for you all to have a fairly painless way to help out your fellow man. You've already heard me talk about the past that we are featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database that listeners and creators alike can go and access all kinds of things regarding podcasts. Well, the good folks at Podchaser have now decided that they have raised so much money and they've gotten such great support, they are now partnering with Libsyn and Captivate and they're going to extend their, quote, reviews for good campaign. So, wonderful news, now throughout April 30th, Podchaser is going to continue to pledge for every podcast review or every episode review left on their site. They will donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels. Now, for every reply that a podcaster leaves to a reviewer, they'll double that amount. That may not seem like much at first, but something to keep in mind, Podchaser has thousands of podcasts on its website. And if you consider just for our own podcast, this is our 58th episode, if you count the bonus episodes. So in theory, if people were to go out and review every one of our single episodes of the podcast, and I were to respond, you're looking at like $30 a person. That is definitely nothing to sneeze at. And again, I will add, Podchaser itself is a free website to access all you have to do is sign up get an account made and you are ready to go to review and so folks if you could take the time you are only incidentally helping me and or any other podcast you enjoy and in reality you are absolutely helping folks by feeding those in need so what's not to love in the meantime if you follow us please Join us in taking a look at our new website, thelscep.com. You can go there, subscribe for updates. You can find links to all of the podcast platforms of your choice. Please take a moment, look it over, let us know what you think. 
As always, we will extend the offer. If you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to even be more personal or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please feel free. Send us an audio message by way of Anchor, a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there. Please, folks, make sure you're staying healthy, wash your hands, keep up with the social distancing, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.